on God to join us in worship as we worship Him. We have confessed faith in Him and our sins to Him. He has assured us of His pardon. We've offered our hearts and our lives to Him in our tithes and offerings. And now we have the great opportunity to go before Him and ask of Him. Let us now go before our Lord. Let us pray together, asking all that we need and want according to His will and kingdom. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day, a day that You have made that we could gather and ask and worship You to Your great glory. We now come asking. We, O Lord, lift up our own civil government before You. We pray, O Lord, for our local officials, those in the various governments that as are represented within our own congregation, but even further, we pray, O Lord, for them. We pray that they would govern and rule according to your will and word, that by their rule they would honor you with their mouths and hearts, and that by that rule the people within our own communities would prosper and prosper well. We pray, O oh Lord, for all, whether it be, O oh Lord, uh, governors, local mayors, city councils, we pray that you would remind all of the law that you've written upon their heart as they are common ministers even in the civil realm today. We pray, O oh Lord, for those who are in office, put upon them and press upon their hearts the gravity of such a role in society that they too will one day have to stand before your throne giving an account of how they've ruled over us. We pray also, O oh Lord, for missions within our own world. We think of the, the mission and work of our own presbytery, uh, Ileana Presbytery. We pray for this presbytery that you would continue, O oh Lord, to raise up ministers within to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all of southern Illinois and Indiana. We pray also, O oh Lord, for our women's ministry. We pray for uh, Miss Chris Lawler, as she leads this endeavor, as we've heard some announcements even today of their work and service. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the strong ministry uh, that has been uh, to women within our own geographical bounds. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd continue to bless this ministry. We pray that you'd continue to uh, bless Chris and her endeavors therein. And we pray, O oh Lord, that the women of our presbytery, whether that be congregational, pastors, wives, all, O oh Lord, we pray that would be blessed according to your word through this ministry. We also pray, O oh Lord, for those who are lost. We think of those who are lost in Australia this morning. We pray that you would use the Reformed churches there to continue to preach Christ, Christ crucified, uh, to those who do not know you. We, O oh Lord, pray uh, for all on that continent, that there would be a spirit, O oh Lord, of revival, of restoration of true Christian doctrines within their societies there. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would use the church for that end. We pray that you would continue to raise up men that would be missionaries there to preach the gospel, to plant faithful gospel-believing churches. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would encourage the ministers there as they continue to labor in such a difficult society. We also, O oh Lord, pray for our own congregation. We think of sanctification within our own bounds as we're reminded of a second offering where we'll have opportunities to exercise the grace of liberality. We thank you, O oh Lord, for our deacons and their initiative in this regard. We pray, O oh Lord, that as they show us the grace of liberality within the congregation, that you would instill within each of our hearts that same grace. 
that we would be a people that would give of ourselves to the Lord, both with time, with money, with all that we are, that we would be a living sacrifice unto Christ. We thank you, O Lord, for our deacons, and we pray that by their example we would become more like them, that we would be a people that offer all that we are in your service. We thank you for great examples, but we pray also for our own our own sanctification in the Lord Jesus Christ. We continue, O Lord, to pray for those in our congregation who are struggling. We thank you, O Lord, for the good reports over the last week of Kaya's uh, continued recovery with her knee replacement. We pray, O Lord, that you would continue to encourage her, that as she continues rehab, that her knee would return to full mobility without pain or difficulty. We pray that you keep her spirit high, her and Patrick, as they continue to navigate those waters. We also continue to lift up Joanne uh, uh, Ostendorf this morning. We are glad to see her here with us and among us, but we know the difficulty after surgeries and procedures such as this, uh, there's a weakening, there, there's an exhaustion. And I'm sure, oh Lord, that uh, the Ostendorfs will be tired later even today because of coming out to worship you. And in that great privilege, oh Lord, bless them. Remind them of your care and grace. Give them energy where it is needed. Give them rest also where it is needed. And use your church here, O oh Lord, to care for them. We, can, we lift up uh, Larry Rogers as he'll have a procedure in the coming weeks. We pray that you keep him and Lynn's spirits high, that you would shower upon them grace, mercy, as high as their spirits may seem now. Continue to protect them, encourage them, Show your steadfast love to them. Send all of these folks, O oh Lord, an extra portion of your spirit as you care for them. You, O oh Lord, know the deepest needs of our hearts. As we have confessed our sin to you, O oh Lord, help us in killing our sin. Send us your spirit in a special manner, even this morning, to aid in that destruction of sin in our own lives. Lord, bring it to an end to your glory. Grow us in Christ as we come, O Lord, asking of you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We've had a few weeks break with uh, Easter and then the privilege of uh, having a Sunday off. Um, This session gave me a, a time to go to a pastor's retreat, and so I thank them for that. And so we're a few weeks off of our Philippians series, but that's all right. Um, We're in chapter 3 today, uh, a big chapter uh, in the book of Philippians. Uh, One of my commentaries on this passage today was over 100 pages. And so I I couldn't make it through the whole commentary. It, It was just too much for one commentary. But this is a dense passage I could likely spend five or six weeks on this passage as Paul shows us his impeccable profile and how that means nothing to him but rubbish. I could, but I don't want to get too bogged down. Not as bogged down as the commentator that I truly cherish was bogged down with every iota of the text before us. And so we're in Philippians 3, a great passage of the righteousness that we find in faith in Christ. A righteousness not gained by our own work, but by the work of God himself. In reverence then, stand before, uh, uh, before him as we read Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day for the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. What we see in this passage is an impeccable profile from the apostle. In high school, I remember being encouraged. It seemed just to be the culture of the day to build an impeccable profile. The idea was, at least in my high school, to prepare everyone for college. And in order to prepare for college well, you must build your resume for college. You must have a great uh, resume that as you submit it, you would be viewed as one of the bright, shining people to apply to such an institution. And so what did this resume need? Well, if I recall correctly, they had to have massive sports accolades, uh, incredible participation in school extracurriculars, uh, clubs. You had to have leadership experience in your local school government. You had to take your advanced placement classes, so you've already had an associate's by the time you entered college. You needed straight A's, but a 4.0 wasn't enough. You needed advanced placement classes to boost you above that 4.0, and you most certainly needed something of the 30s on your ACT. If you did all that, then maybe you wouldn't have to pay for college. Maybe you wouldn't have to pay for college. An impeccable profile. And I I recount of my many, many failures of producing such a profile. I was low in sports accolades. I didn't have all the best grades high but not past four. My ACT was much to, left much to be desired. I did not have what it took to have a carefree, perhaps, undergrad experience. I did not have an impeccable profile. But that's how the world works around us, right? We, we view and value as a society a great record. 
When you look at resumes, as you do work in your various spheres of life, those who excel, their record bolsters, it builds, society grows and advances. It's a virtue to work hard, to benefit not only your own home, but society around us. We want an impeccable record. We want a legacy that as we leave it to our own children, they would have a better and easier life because of what we have produced in our own hearts and lives. And we might be tempted with such a culture around us, a good culture in many regards, to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and to produce something great. We might be tempted to bring such a culture and think that God works in the same ways. That God is a pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of God. That the, the Lord of hosts plays by the same rules as our society. That we, if we just did the right things, if we did the right works in his kingdom, then he will view us as worthy and right. Then we will have a good legacy. But as we see in this passage, it is not by our own works that we gain this great standing before God, but by the works of another. Paul is setting the church up here. You have been reminded on and on again of the petty disagreements in the book of Philippi between two women that have segregated the church according to their own issues. And Paul then in chapter 3 brings this passage to bear in order to remind them what is truly worth dividing for. It's not over your petty interpersonal issues. Rather, what is truly worth dividing for in the context of this passage is anything that seeks to sever you Uh, sever you from the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Paul says you should be weary of. That is what you should divide over. That is what you should take issue of in the church. should come only when the gospel is fatally attacked by false teaching. What is the false teaching that Paul has in mind here? It's not a particular issue in Philippi, but it is a good reminder. That is the teaching of the Judaizers as many commentators would say, these were the people that are written about in the book of Galatians. Go back and read Galatians and you'll see the Judaizers on full display. So much so that when Paul writes to the church of Galatia, he has no thanksgiving because the Judaizers have taken over. Who were the Judaizers though? Uh, They were those who valued their Jewish heritage above all things. They viewed that if you wanted to become a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you must have faith in him, but you also must uphold these cultural Jewish ties. You must not eat certain foods. You must adhere to Jewish holidays and festivals, go on Jewish pilgrimages, and chiefly why they got the name Judaizers and the party of the circumcision in Galatians, it was because if you were to become a true believer, you must be circumcised. It was a call-out, perhaps an issue within the church where it wasn't merely faith that brought you to Christ, but it was faith plus circumcision. You want to be saved? Good. Then be baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ and come with a scalpel and be ready to be circumcised. A difficult call. A difficult call within the church. And that is what Paul is discouraging, that faith plus. Faith plus works. Faith plus circumcision in order to have true salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. While we may 
understand where uh, the Philippians are coming from, and, but I would, I would say that mo- most of us don't have a good connection uh, of this circumcision idea. We, we don't force any of you. It's not even talked about that you must be circumcised in order to become a member of Providence Presbyterian Church, but we too, in the back of our minds somewhere, think of this very problem well. Faith plus something. In the back of our minds, we want to strive to earn what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we see in this old text, the roots of legalism, we see it today in our own self-righteous society, but also within our churches. An opportunity where we just have an itch to prove our worth, to prove our greatness, whether it be to one another or to God himself. And so this passage, though a long introduction, it reminds us that since your best works can't save you, put no confidence in your flesh. That's what this passage teaches us chiefly. We are wholly insufficient. And so since our best works can't save you, since they can't bring you righteousness, put no confidence in the flesh. Well, how do you do this? How do you put no confidence in the flesh? Paul outlines it quite thoroughly throughout this passage. First, he says that how do you prevent putting confidence in the flesh? First, you need to be on the lookout. Look in verse 2 with me. It's quite clear. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul uh, is, is using these terms because they would turn the tables on the discussion. You see, the Jewish people of this time would be those who called the Gentiles dogs. I lament that I have to have two sermons that have negative imagery as it relates to dogs only further tarnishes my reputation among the congregation. But Paul doesn't use the term dog positively. Dogs in the ancient world were mongrels of the streets. Uh, They were, as I thought in Africa, they were flea-ridden. Their hair stood up on their backs. They were mangy. They foamed from the mouth. And whatever pollution was left by humanity, they would tear up or eat. These were not man's best friends. They were something you wanted nothing to do with. They were unworthy of God's promises. And the Jews of the time would say that the Gentiles were dogs. That was their derogatory way of talking about those pagans. They were the dogs. They were the most despicable, insolent, miserable creatures of all the earth, as one commentator said. Think of Jezebel. As she falls out the window and dies, what what consumes her? Dogs. There's no worse way than to be gotten rid of by dogs in the ancient world. And so Paul turns the tables. He calls those who are of the circumcision party, those who are Jewish uh, converts who were teaching circumcision plus faith, they were the dogs. But not only were they the dogs, they were the doers of evil. They were evil doers. It's, It's quite interesting. Paul continues turning those tables by saying that the ones who would think they are doing good are actually the ones doing evil. Think of the pride of these Jewish believers, this Jewish group who advocated for circumcision. They were, in their minds, obeying the letter of the law. They were those who were upright. It was everyone else who was the problem. But imagine the barrier of what circumcision as a right to come in the church would cause. In my opinion, the, the Judaizers wielded this false doctrine to keep Gentiles away. 
from the kingdom. Think of a, a 28-year-old man who comes to seemingly faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as they're being interviewed for membership at their Providence Presbyterian Church, that after they answer all their vows, there's a sixth one that's added, are you now prepared to be circumcised? I think most men would have a moment of pause and say, maybe let me rethink this. The barrier, it would keep many out of the kingdom. It would put a barrier between the gospel that is to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile away from the Gentile. That's why Paul has such an issue with it. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. And whenever he sees this rise up, whether it be Peter or anyone else, he calls it out because it is an impediment to the work of Christ throughout the world. It is actually doing evil, much more evil than they think is good. And this leads to the great culmination of the last thing that Paul charges them with, and that is being mutilators of the flesh. It's all, this, this phrase is only found here. And the, the imagery is to be those who seek to discipline themselves in order to get the attention of a deity. You think of those medieval priests who would whip their back during the plague and open wounds in order to try to invoke the presence of God, to draw him in, to see his pain. This was a pagan idea, a pagan idea that, that, that goes long before medieval era in paganism. And so the, 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 the table is finally fully turned. Paul says, no, those pagans are the ones who are circumcised of the heart, and you are not. You are uh, what you accuse others to be. You are the, like the dogs of the Gentiles. You are like the evil pagans. You are like the pagans who mutilate their flesh in order to find great fulfillment in their gods. You are them. You are not true worshipers. You see this come to completion in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, what God cares about, he doesn't care about the external work of circumcision for his people. What he cares about is found within here. He cares about the heart, and that's why we read that passage in Jeremiah and Romans. It is to remind you that the true circumcision, the circumcision that physical circumcision pointed to, was found from within. God cared about the heart, the heart being circumcised. But what does that mean? It means that the Lord cared about the heart becoming free from sin not mere flesh being cut from the body. He cared about the heart being circumcised of its sin, of being cut away, thrown away, done away with. That is what was important. An act that no church elder can force you to have happen to you. It's a work that comes from the Spirit himself. They are the true circumcision. Those who worship the Spirit of God and the glory of God, who put no confidence in their own works. Those are those from the true circumcision. And so this is why we can't put any confidence in the flesh because our own works can't circumcise our hearts. We can't force our own salvation through external means. We're reminded of the great hymn writer, nothing to the cross I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We can't work our way to salvation. Therefore, we need to be on the lookout for when we hear calls by dogs by evildoers, by mutilators who call us to do something plus faith. Faith plus any work. 
we can't have righteousness. We can't be a child of God by our own works. Why? Well, the passage goes on. Uh, we can't, our best works can't save us, therefore we shouldn't put confidence in them. Uh, because, well, how? Because we need to be on the lookout. But secondly, in verses 4 to 7, we see that we must also, how do we uh, avoid self-righteousness? We must count all as lost. Though I myself, as Paul says, have reason for confidence in the flesh also, I, anyone, I, if anyone, sorry, else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. And he lays out his great heritage. Paul outlines the great works of his own life why he could be the perfect Judaizer, why he could be the perfect one to bring about his own salvation. He leans into the Judaizer's faith by showing his accolades. What are they? He's born of the first, uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin. He knew his genealogy. He knew the town where his family came from. As to the law, he was the Pharisee the one that would know the law so well that he would practice the letter of it. I mean, after all, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Even Jews in their time had become laxed with when the circumcision happened. I think of our own modern uh, example of when we have children now, moms are encouraged to keep those little ones in the house for like six to eight months and, and keep them from the church. Don't baptize them. Wait until they're walking to baptize them. We have maybe the same kind of idea, but not Judaizers or not the Pharisees. They, be, they circumcised on the eighth day. They did not withhold their children from the community at all. They were Pharisees. To their zeal, Paul was a persecutor of the church, the chief among the Jews. His zeal for God was so that he would bring an end to Christianity and to the righteous under the law. He was blameless. He, he upheld the law, not only the Ten Commandments, but all those little laws. He was a great Pharisee in his own mind. Uh, he was a proud Pharisee. He was a proud Jew. If anyone had reason to boast in their heritage and their work, it would be Paul. Paul could be the one who could confidently say, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. He, he was a true Israelite. He was truly great. But what does he say about all that heritage? Verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I count but a loss for the sake of Christ. He uses banking imagery. I have banked so much self-righteousness in my life. I have done great works. I have killed disciples of the church. I have done so much great in the name of God. I have so much bank, and yet for the sake of Christ it is all of loss. That self-righteous account that he had maintained his whole life is worthless as it relates to the work of God in his life. He deposited so much. He had done so much. It would take Jesus halting him on the road to Damascus to reconsider all that he had done. He had a great life, at least externally. And in that great life, he realizes he must count it all as loss. All of those works, all of that rabbinic memorization. He knew the Torah better than any. He knew the word. We see it in the New Testament as he quotes the Old Testament so regularly. He knew the word. He lived a pious life, and yet all of that minus Christ is rubbish. It's worthless. And the same is for you. Your best works cannot save you. 
The best works of your flesh cannot save you. Even when you thought you perhaps in your own delusion had a perfect day, a perfectly sinless day, it can't save you. What can save you, though, as we see in this passage, is the one who pays that debt. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who Paul finally realizes in verse 7 that everything I've done is rubbish, and therefore I must offer it all to him because I need his righteousness. He is the one who pays off that sin and gives me the debit of his own righteousness. We need to be careful, and in the church we can become like Paul, priding our heritage to our own detriment. We can think that, well, look at this church we have built over the past 12 years. Look at the building that we are building when that gets finished. We have done great things. We must remember the humility of Paul that even with great heritage, we can do nothing to earn our salvation in Christ. Now, you might hear me say this. Nothing you can do will give you salvation. And that is truly and wholly true. Your next question might be then, well, can I do whatever I want? So I have to have a brief excursus. Should I encourage you to be a libertine, doing whatever you want? You know, if I can't do anything to earn my salvation, I just need faith, then should I live a lawless life? And the answer is also unapologetically no. You can't do anything to earn your salvation, but that doesn't mean you should live as many people in their 20s do, lawlessly. Go away to college and have complete freedom and abuse it to its complete end. No, Paul isn't encouraging a libertine life, a life that doesn't care about holiness. And what he is encouraging is that when we do have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it changes how we think of our lives and the works we offer to God. James says quite stringently that faith, uh, faith without deeds is dead. And what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that your, your deeds save you. He's saying that an ex, the ordinary life of the believer, when they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the next thing to happen is good works for God, a life that seeks to honor him, a life that seeks to uphold the Ten Commandments, as we have confessed even a few minutes ago, that the, the life after salvation, after faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is a life that seeks to honor God. That is how you know that the Lord has been working in your heart. Sometimes when a believer comes to me with great sadness uh, of their own sin, they're being burnt up by it, they may wonder whether they are truly saved. They may struggle. But for those who who are in Jesus Christ, that struggle is evidence. Evidence that the Lord continues to work. Even if it's not to their own delight because it's just too slow. The Lord is the one that brings salvation. And so everyone, every one of us, as we drive on the road towards Christ himself, there are two ditches we must avoid. We must avoid the, the law, the legalism that Paul talks about here, but also the lawlessness on the other ditch. We must seek by all accounts to stay on the road, to avoid the ditches of legalism and lawlessness recognizing that every work of goodness that comes from us is not from us, but from the Lord himself. So we must count all as loss. But finally here, and perhaps quickly, we must also count Christ as gain. That's where the hinge of all of this text resides in. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of things and count them rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ. 
All of his great works are counted what? They are counted as rubbish. Rubbish is the type of thing that you discard quickly. Uh, I'll I'll keep it uh, uh, nice and revered in this service, and I won't go into detail of what Paul means by rubbish, but I'll give you a nice seminarian illustration. When I was in seminary, I remember I was studying regularly in the library, partly because I live 40 miles north of RTS, and so my study, whenever I was on campus, was in the library. And so one summer I was taking some, I think, summer Greek, and so after Greek, it would be all morning, I would go to the library and study. But I'd have lunch there, and I would open my, I would open the fridge and put my lunchbox in, but there was this bowl in there at the beginning of summer, bowl watermelon. And I remember as I opened that, that door, time in and time out, five days a week, all summer, that bowl of watermelon resided there indefinitely. It, it was an alluring specimen as, I, as the summer went on. I thought, is anyone going to have the decency to claim this watermelon? No. Once month three rolled around, it was the end of summer, my languages had end. I had this nice long relationship with this bowl of watermelon that I saw every morning, every afternoon, and I thought, I'm going to have to do something about this. I don't care what, what judgment I can get for throwing away someone's bowl of watermelon, but I have to deal with this. I opened the watermelon, and I, it was a mistakeable action, to say the least. It, I opened it, and it spawned its own universe inside, covered in the white fur of mold, blues, browns, and greens, the most despicable, disgusting sight, and the smell was horrid. As, as quick as I opened it, I realized there's no salvaging this bowl. I closed it quickly, put it in the garbage can, tied it up, and brought it out and threw it away. It was rubbish. It was disgusting. It was something that, that anyone who'd seen would have gagged at. I'm not a gagger, but at that moment I gagged perpetually. To the, that, that's our works. Our works are like that bowl of watermelon. You know, today when you think of your great works, you might think of them in a good light, but then as the summer goes on, as the heat of the great Mississippi South beams upon such works, they become more and more rancid as you think about them. They come like a bowl of disgusting watermelon. That's the rubbish. That, that is the rubbish of Paul's works before Christ that he gains. When, because when comparing his works to Christ, he sees his works in true light. He, he sees that, that, that nice, beautiful, going back to the watermelon, new, fresh watermelon, delectable to the sight, the smell of great fragrance, juicy, in perfect condition, next to our rigid, disgusting works of a moldy watermelon. That's, how, that, that's the comparison. That's why Christ is gained to Paul. Because when he sees the Christ, the Christ that died for him and that would come before him on the road to Damascus, he would come, be confronted with his true sin. Though he was a proud Pharisee, he realized none of it was enough. That he needed a Savior. And that great work is found throughout verse 9 and 10, even as Paul suffers that he has the righteousness that he needs in order to become righteous in God's sight. There is a great imputation that takes place when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We give the Lord Jesus Christ our sin, and he in turn then gives us his righteousness. It's a great exchange, as one Puritan wrote. We give him our sin, 
and he gives us his righteousness. It is gain. We gain perfect works in the perfect Christ. Not by our own work, not even by our own will, but by the work and will of another. And in verse 11, as Paul closes this section, we see the great delight, the great taste of what awaits, that he might attain the resurrection from the dead. Eternal life pales in comparison to the physical life that we currently have, though it is a blessing to live life. Uh, it, it pales. I've been reading um, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy recently, and you'll have to suffer through it because it is the main trilogy I'm on, and so you're going to have illustrations on it. But in the second book, uh, Dr. Elwin Ransom is charged by uh, the greater God of, of the universe to go to Paralandra, which would be Venus, in order to stop the fall of Martian kind there. And so as Ransom would go, he would try to convince the king and queen of this land uh, to not uh, uh, fall in the same way that his own first parents fell. And it is a captivating story because another human comes who is possessed by Satan. And, and the way that Lewis uh, describes this doctor is just so unnerving. It's, it's horrifying in many regards. But as, as, as Ransom comes to the land, he, he becomes to get hungry. He's worried that the food isn't something that he could digest. And, and there's some anxiousness to him as he decides to eat. But... As humans do, they get hungry and they must eat. And what happens after Ransom's eating of the delectable fruit of a sinless world is of pure satisfaction, pure ecstasy, pure delight and joy, something he had never experienced on earth. And by the end of the book, when he would go back to earth, he would be radiant with the glory of a sinless world and he would have no desire for the food of the earth. It was like rubbish. He said, just give me bread because that's his that's as basic as it gets. And, and why is it? It's because of the great delight of the food. Here's how Lewis describes it. The first taste put all his caution to flight. It was, of course, a taste, just as a thirst and hunger had been a thirst and hunger. But then it was so different from every other taste that it seemed pedentary to even call it a taste at all. It was like the discovery of a totally new genius of pleasures, something unheard of among men, out of the reckoning beyond all covenant. From one drop of the earth, wars on earth would be fought and nations betrayed. It could not be classified. As he let the empty gourd fall from his hand, he was about to pluck a, pluck a second one. It came into his head that he was neither hungry or thirsty, and yet a repeat pleasure of so intense and almost so spiritual seemed an obvious thing to do. But for some reason, his reason... He thought, maybe I shouldn't taste again. Perhaps the experience had been so complete that repetition would be but a vulgarity, like asking to hear a symphony twice in one day. It's, it's meant to give you the picture of the complete satisfaction and joy. I, I've often wondered if we would eat meat in heaven. And, and in my own carnal nature, I want to say yes because I love meat. But if, if I think like Lewis here, I may not need meat. I, I may, what I have gained in the Lord Jesus Christ, be completely and fully satisfied by the food that Christ offers me in everlasting light. So great, so awesome. It is a spiritual experience to eat food. 
a experience so great that compels in comparison. That is the gain. That is the imagery of gain that we have in Christ. A gain of pure delight, pure satisfaction. And when compared to our own works and deeds, is but rubbish. That is the promise that the Lord offers you here today. That as you place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the great promise that you have is that kind of promise that C.S. Lewis portrays in the garden of Paralandra, of great utter delight, a delight that fully satisfies that there is no more need at all. So, since your best works can't save you, put no confidence in your own flesh. Put no confidence. You do this by being on the lookout for dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. You do this by counting all as lost, and you do this by counting Christ as gain. I don't know about you. You may have an impeccable profile. I certainly do not. You may have many accolades, many achievements. For those who have envisioned their life at this current stage as being somewhat as you'd envisioned as a younger boy or girl as not holding up to the standard, there is a great promise here for you. Maybe you thought your life would be different, better. Well, there is a great promise that you can count even your meager works as rubbish for the Christ that you have as gain. But maybe you're here today as a Presbyterian proud, a proud people, a proud of your work, engineering all sorts of solutions to problems that I didn't even know I had, profiles that seem to get larger and larger as the years go on, as your trades mature, as your work seems to get better. Well, even those are rubbish in the sight of God. Even your best works as it relates to salvation are but rubbish. So put no confidence even in the greatest accolades that you've achieved in your life, but instead place all your confidence in the risen Christ. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that it is not by our own works, but by your works that we would have salvation. And that nothing to the cross I bring, simply to the cross I cling might be the words found in every one of our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.